137 of the TruthQuest podcast, the truth about post-constitutional America. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as politically induced mental illness, totalitarianism, the Paris Climate Accord, social media purges, or the 2020 presidential election comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on a host of platforms, including iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, BitChute, Brighteon, ThinkSpot, Rumble, and Instagram, where I post a short highlight of each show at instagram.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Whatever platform you are listening to this on, please take a minute and scroll down and give it a five-star rating or leave a positive review. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through online advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. For anyone who is a regular listener, you know that one of my favorite topics is the United States Constitution. And if I had to choose one episode for you to listen to, I would hands down choose episode number three, The Truth About the Constitution. Patrick Henry once said, The Constitution is not an instrument for the government to restrain the people. It's an instrument for the people to restrain the government. The key takeaway is, if the Constitution is silent on an issue, then the federal government is not empowered to get involved. Period. End of story. No debate. No whatabouts. I refer quite often to Article 1, Section 8, which dictates the few and defined powers granted by the Constitution to the federal government. We will review that list again in this episode. James Madison put it this way in Federalist 45, quote, The powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be exercised principally on external objects as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce, with which last the power of taxation will, for the most part, be connected. The powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the objects which, in the ordinary course of affairs, concern of lives, liberty, and property of the people, and the internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. So I want you to pause here for a moment and internalize the message of Federalist 45. The federal government was heavily restricted, few and defined, while the states were to have all the power, numerous and indefinite. Just in case there was any confusion about this point, the Founding Fathers authored the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution, which reads, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Meaning, if the powers are not on that small list, then the power resides with the states. Very simple concept, right? I mean, it makes sense given that the states created the federal government. I mean, the states already existed, and they created the general or the federal government to do just a few things. It is therefore subordinate to the states, but it sure doesn't feel that way today, does it? In episode three, I followed this discussion about the few and defined with a list of things that are not on the list, i.e. that the Constitution is silent on. This episode is that discussion on steroids. By the end of it, I want you to ask the question, what would the Founding Fathers think about America in the 21st century? What is the rule book for America? If not the Constitution, then what? Today it seems like the rule book is the whim of the Democratic Party and big tech. When it comes to being principle-driven in the arena of politics and public policy, 
What could be more directive than the Constitution? Unfortunately, we now live in a post-Constitution America, meaning the limited scope of power granted to the federal government has become virtually unlimited with an impotent Congress and an active judiciary. And I know what some of you are thinking. Who gives a shit about that ancient document written by a bunch of wealthy, white, racist slave owners? Well, that perspective and the living, breathing Constitution is a big part of the problem. I've described the Constitution as America's rule book. We can either have a government of men or a government of rules. A government of men is a government of the whims of men, and men are by nature sinful, greedy, and power-hungry. It was James Madison who said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on the government would be necessary. My point is, a government of rules runs regardless of who is in charge. The rule of law rules, not the people in charge. That is why I harp on the Constitution so much. It used to be the glue that held the United States together. Now it is ignored and bastardized. In fact, we live in a post-Constitution America, and the majority of Americans either do not care or have no clue. For over a century, the left has been on a full-court press to rewrite the Constitution or operate outside its limitations. For those of you who will find yourself arguing with me as I criticize the Supreme Court, the unconstitutional actions of presidents, and the unconstitutional, unwieldy power of the federal government, what is your standard? For liberals in general, and progressives specifically, you are fully ensconced with a big government mentality, which is directly opposed to the Constitution. So your whole agenda, your whole perspective of the federal government is essentially anti-constitutional. Virtually your whole agenda is unconstitutional. So let's look at America's rule book, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, where in 18 paragraphs the Founding Fathers clearly articulate what limited powers the Constitution grants to the federal government. Here is a breakdown of those 18 paragraphs. Six of them concern the military and the militia. Four of them concern money and taxes. There's one paragraph about commerce, one about naturalization and bankruptcies, one about post office and post roads, another about copyrights and patents. There's one paragraph about the federal courts, another paragraph around maritime crimes, and there's one paragraph about the governance of the District of Columbia. And finally, there's one paragraph that gives Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. Given all that, how many federal agencies would you say pass a constitutionality test? I'd say maybe the Defense Department, the Post Office, State Department, the Treasury, uh, the Patent and Trademark Office, I guess the IRS would have to because of the 16th Amendment, uh, the federal court system, Immigration and Customs, and maybe, I guess, the Justice Department. That's it. Throughout the rest of this episode, we are going to come up with billions of dollars of cost savings for the country by eliminating dozens of unconstitutional federal agencies and departments. It's going to be glorious. You often hear the argument made that the Constitution is a living, breathing document. Well, that argument is refuted by the very existence of the Constitution. We fought a war to rid ourselves of being ruled by a living, breathing, ever-changing British Constitution. The Founding Fathers put everything in writing. It was a contract. It required every state or colony to ratify it and added a rather rigorous amendment process to purposely avoid the living, breathing problem. Either you live in a constitutional republic or you don't. The federal government cannot pick and choose when it abides by the Constitution and when it does not. 
It's very simple. If Congress passes a law that restricts free speech or free press, restricts people from peacefully assembling, restricts the freedom of religion, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, those laws are all null and void because they violate the Constitution. Similarly, if Congress passes a law or the President signs an executive order in which they cannot point to the article and section of the Constitution that permits it, that law or executive order is null and void as well. Let's start our examination of the evidence that we live in a post-constitutional America with the other branch of the federal government, the judiciary, specifically the Supreme Court. In a constitutional America, the Supreme Court issues opinions that apply only to the case that they are adjudicating. In a post-constitutional America, the Supreme Court issues rulings or decisions that apply to the entire country. We wait every summer with bated breath as they legislate from the bench. They kill the Constitution via death by a million bad precedents. They literally make shit up out of whole cloth, and that made-up shit is used in subsequent cases, which is then used in other subsequent cases, and on and on it goes. I go into more detail on this topic in episode 16, The Truth About the Supreme Court. How about the Federal Reserve? Well, the institution itself is unconstitutional. How do I know that? Because the Constitution is silent on the issue of what is essentially a national bank. The Treasury Department is there for a reason. The other reason I know it is unconstitutional is because the Constitution is very clear on the issue of fiat currency. It actually prohibits it. In Article 1, Section 10, the states are specifically prohibited from doing anything monetarily other than gold and silver. It reads in part, No state shall coin money. Make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debts. Article 1, Section 8 states, Congress shall have the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States, to coin money, regulate the value thereof, and of foreign coin, and fix the standard of weights and measures. And finally, to provide for the punishment of counterfeiting the securities and current coin of the United States. Notice the words used. Coin money, not print money. Bills of credit were prohibited. Printed IOUs, fiat money, all prohibited. Every member of Congress has taken an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, and yet this charade continues decade after decade. The Federal Reserve destroys this constitutional monetary system by creating a monopoly based on its fiat currency. Without the backing of gold or silver, the central bank can easily create money out of thin air. This not only devalues your purchasing power over time, it also allows the federal government to borrow and spend far beyond what would be possible in a sound money system, where they had to collect taxes in order to pay for all their shit. Without the Fed, the U.S. government wouldn't be able to maintain its unconstitutional warfare and welfare programs. Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution gives the executive branch the command of the nation's armed forces, while Article 1, Section 8 gives the legislative branch the power to decide when the United States goes to war. When was the last time Congress declared war? Was it uh, Korea? Vietnam? Iraq? Afghanistan? Syria? Libya? Panama? None of the above. See, war is very expensive. Maintaining a military with bases all over the world is very expensive. Lots of special interests with their hands out. It's a good thing the Federal Reserve is unconstitutionally printing money. Come to find out, the Department of Defense's annual budget is over $700 billion. That's a lot of printing. 
Check out episode 82, The Truth About How the United States is Supposed to Conduct War, if you're interested in this topic. What about welfare? Old age, pensions like Social Security, the subject of episode 8, food stamps, corporate bailouts, direct payments, none of it's in the Constitution. As a matter of fact, there is nothing in the Constitution about any kind of transfer payments, i.e. subsidies. No farm subsidies, no green energy subsidies, no grants, no student loans, no loan guarantees. And if direct transfer payments to American citizens is not in the Constitution, you can be damn sure that sending money to citizens or governments of other countries ain't in there either. That's $34 billion in annual savings by eliminating international assistance programs. Welfare is very expensive. Maintaining handouts to millions of people is very expensive. Lots of special interests with their hands out. It's a good thing the Federal Reserve is unconstitutionally printing money. How about federal minimum wage laws? Did you know that they are unconstitutional? How do I know that? Because the Constitution is silent on the issue of labor laws. Which is great news because we can cut some $38 billion in annual federal spending by abolishing the Department of Labor. By the way, if you're interested in the economic implications of minimum wage, check out episode 4. I mentioned free speech earlier. The Bill of Rights is very clear. Congress shall make no laws abridging the freedom of speech. What we have going on today in post-constitution, soft totalitarian America is suppression of speech on social media. You may say, hey man, that's not Congress doing anything. Those are private companies. Well, I would be careful with that line of thought because Big Tech has special congressionally protected legal provisions i.e. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. And if the companies are doing the bidding of the government, i.e. discriminating on the basis of political ideology, silencing those who oppose the National Democrats' agenda, then how is that any different than Congress shall make no laws abridging freedom of speech? Also, how much of a stretch is it to say that these special congressionally protected legal provisions are being used to abridge the freedom of press? After all, everyone is a press organization unto themselves today, thanks to social media. The citizen journalist is alive and well. If you are interested in a deep dive into the purge on social media, check out episode 132 and check out episode 126 for a look at big tech censorship. Here is an example of post-constitution America pulled from the headlines right now, here in early 2021. Article 1, Section 4 states, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. So when the Secretary of State or Governor of a state changes the rules or the laws for mail-in ballots without the legislature's prescription, it's unconstitutional. If you want to go a bit deeper on this subject, check out episode 130 and 131. Both address the irregularities, improprieties, and illegalities associated with the presidential election of 2020. Well, what about health care? Nope, it's not in the Constitution. Wait, wait, you say. What about Obamacare? Uh, nope. Despite the majority opinion of the Supreme Court back in 2010, it's still unconstitutional. The court is not the sole arbiter of constitutionality. Federal involvement in health care is unconstitutional regardless of what the Supreme Court says. I bet you didn't know that the single largest budget item on the federal government annually is the Department of Health and Human Services, $1.3 trillion a year. That's just above Social Security, which has an off-budget of $1.1 trillion. I read a little bit about this gargantuan, unconstitutional agency. 
Did you know that the mission of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, is to enhance the health and well-being of all Americans by providing for effective health and human services and by fostering sound, sustained advances in the sciences underlying medicine, public health, and social services? HHS has 11 operating divisions, including eight agencies in the U.S. Public Health Service and three human services agencies. These divisions administer a wide variety of health and human services and conduct life-saving research for the nation, protecting and serving all Americans. Within those 11 divisions, there are 30 agencies. The largest and most well-known are the CDC, the FDA, and NIH. All of that sounds really good, but the whole damn thing is unconstitutional and should be abolished. What about federal declarations about the definition of marriage? Anything constitutional about that? Nope. What about drug prohibition and regulations? Nope, not in there. No more war on drugs. No more federal crimes over marijuana usage. No more war on vaping by the feds. That's great news. I just found over $6 billion in federal spending annually as we can abolish the Food and Drug Administration and $1.3 billion in savings by abolishing ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Explosives. Check this out. I just saved the federal government $7.5 billion annually by abolishing the Environmental Protection Agency because the word environment, it doesn't appear in the Constitution. Related to the environment, what's up with federal ownership of land? I mean, I guess there's nothing wrong with some, but why so much? The Constitution mentions post roads and military installments, but that's about it. Why does the federal government own over a quarter of all U.S. territory? 640 million acres, 28% of the territory. So that calls into question the need for the $16 billion annual budget at the Department of Interior, which funds a bunch of bureaus of the Bureau of Land Management, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Indian Education, Ocean Energy Management, Bureau of Reclamation, Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, and their Bureau of Trust Funds Administration. It's some kind of multi-billion dollar slush slash trust fund to dole money out to American Indians. Other well-known Interior Department agencies include National Park Service, Fish and Wildlife Services, and Geological Survey. What about infrastructure spending? You know, the constant refrain about roads and bridges, roads and bridges. Now you may as well throw in rail and public transit, water, internet expansion, electric grids, and aviation. I mean, the list is endless. The only mention of anything infrastructure-related in the Constitution, again, is post-roads. The word canals and ports don't even appear in the text. And no, a bridge in Minneapolis or an upgrade to the Jacksonville airport does not fall under the general welfare clause. The city and states where the infrastructure resides are responsible for them, not Washington, D.C., not you and me in Iowa or Arizona. If you want to nitpick about the interstate highway or railroads and aviation systems, then pass a constitutional amendment specifically dictating the Fed's role in it. Stop playing games. So guess what? I just saved the country $188 billion annually by abolishing the Department of Transportation. We can kill government funding of Amtrak. There's another $5 billion. Well, that's how much they asked for recently. If the passenger railroad business is that bad, shut the shit down. Why are we funding it? 
Oh, and the best part is I just saved America $36 billion in federal fuel taxes. We also pay around $48 billion in state fuel taxes. Why are we sending $36 billion to D.C. so they can dole it back out to us? Screw that. Let the states set their own tax level, and they fix their own stuff. What about abortion? Wait a minute. You may be thinking, sure, the Constitution doesn't specifically say anything about abortion, but the Supreme Court has. Everyone's heard of Roe v. Wade. However, it's obvious that very few people have ever read the court's opinion. As I point out in episodes 46 and 47, the truth about Roe v. Wade, anyone who reads the opinion knows that it actually puts severe restrictions on abortions. Constitutionally speaking, abortion is a state issue. But every time a state passes a law that may make abortion a less appealing option to, say, carrying your baby to term, loving it and raising it, or giving it up for adoption, the pro-abortion lobby and the National Democrats make a federal case out of a state issue. They run like a pack of rabid jackals to the nearest friendly activist judge and start filing lawsuits asking for injunctive relief. It's sick and twisted. But what do you expect from a lobby that advocates for the murder of innocent babies? More on abortion in episodes 2 and 86. Can you guess how many federal crimes are mentioned in the Constitution? Three. Piracy, counterfeit, and treason. According to Ed Meese, quote, When the first Congress enacted the original Crimes Act of 1790, it stipulated only 17 federal crimes. Today, Congress's own research service can't even count all the federal crimes on the books. Our best estimate is that the federal code now delineates more than 4,500 federal crimes, and federal regulations create tens of thousands more, end quote. This is the epitome of living in a post-Constitution America. How about federal gun control measures? Well, it starts with the Second Amendment, which reads, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to bear arms, shall not be infringed. Seems pretty simple. Don't mess with our guns. But now that we live in a post-Constitution America, making the Second Amendment argument is a waste of time, as is explaining your natural right to self-defense to some people. The Tenth Amendment Center puts it this way, quote, Every federal gun control measure is illegal and unconstitutional. That includes the National Firearms Act of 1934, its amendments in 1986, the Undetectable Firearms Act in 1968, the Bump Stock Ban of 2018, and everything in between. Check out episode 18 for more on this issue. Can someone find the article in the Constitution that calls for federal involvement in the education of our children? I, I couldn't find it either. Wonderful news. I just saved the federal government $78 million annually by abolishing the Department of Education. Few topics prove the post-constitutional nature of America better than the saga of Edward Snowden, the topic of episode number 72. The NSA's domestic spying apparatus that he uncovered, and the fact that the practice largely continues today, says more than I could possibly articulate about this subject. I want to read you the Fourth Amendment and then relate it to the mass surveillance program. It reads, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized, end quote. This NSA program has already been declared unconstitutional by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Why is it still in existence? Why hasn't Congress dismantled it or defunded it? I will answer that question in a minute. So, 
I'm thinking we can abolish the Department of Homeland Security, the CIA, the DIA, and the NSA, and probably two dozen more unconstitutional military-slash-intelligence agencies, or at least cut their budgets in half. I mean, Homeland Security's annual budget is $60 billion. As I mentioned earlier, the Department of Defense budget is $700 billion. Further evidence that we live in a post-Constitution America is the Democrats' current proposal for domestic terrorism legislation, all of which is a full frontal assault on the Fourth Amendment, which I just quoted you. The Democrats are proposing legislation to unleash the illegal, unconstitutional NSA spying apparatus on American citizens who do not worship at the altar of the Democrats' agenda. They will determine who these so-called terrorists are, and therefore worthy of surveillance, loss of employment, and business. You know, people like those who question the election results or post stuff on social media that's critical of some political policy. You know, insurrectionists, revolutionists, insurgents, extremists. How about impeachment? Clearly, it is in the Constitution, no doubt about it. And if we are being honest, it has not been employed enough over the last 200 years. If Congress protected and defended the Constitution, scores of federal judges who legislated from the bench by creating constitutional rights out of thin air or ignore the Constitution would have been impeached over the last 100 years. And most of our presidents would have been threatened with impeachment for taking us to war without a declaration. Many of those same presidents should have been brought up on war crimes charges for what they did to civilians in all of our many military incursions. On top of that, there are thousands of federal employees and appointees who should have been impeached as well. But what about the impeachment of Trump? Well, they both were shams, but impeachment is a political charge, not a criminal one. So the first one is what it is. Nothing really unconstitutional about it. It was stupid. However, the second impeachment of Trump was the final nail in the coffin of post-Constitution America. Article 2, Section 4 reads, quote, The President, Vice President, and all civilian officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, end quote. The Constitution specifies only four points about the Senate impeachment trial of a president. Number one, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. Number two, when sitting as a court of impeachment, senators, quote, shall be on oath or affirmation. Number three, conviction of any accused officer requires, quote, concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. And four, when the president is accused, the chief justice shall preside. So do you see the post-constitutional problem here? Number one, the Constitution has a provision for impeaching the president. It doesn't say former president or private citizen. Number two, how do you remove the former president from an office that he no longer holds? And number three, the Constitution also says that the Chief Justice shall reside over the trial. Problem. Chief Justice John the Coward Roberts said he would not do it. The brazen and undeterred Democrats who don't give a shit about the Constitution instead assigned longtime Democrat pro-impeachment senator from Vermont Patrick Leahy to preside over the trial. The dude presides over the circus while at the same time casting a vote for conviction. It's beyond post-constitutional at this point. It's banana republic kangaroo court time. Check out episode number 68 for more about impeachment. So you may be thinking, how did this happen? Well, first of all, it happened slowly over time. Everyone knows once the federal government starts something, a program, a giveaway, an agency, it never goes away. Hell, their budgets never go down, even in the worst recessions. 
I place the blame for the post-constitutional America squarely at the feet of Congress and the states. For decades, Congress has proven guilty of dereliction of duty. Not a single one of the 535 members of Congress have kept their oath to protect and defend the Constitution. They hold the power of the purse. They could defund a lot of this stuff in a matter of days. But there's no will to cut anything. Congress is full of cowards looking to get rich themselves and to dole out goodies to their lobbyists and, of course, get reelected. They have self-neutered themselves. There are only a handful of elected officials in D.C. who are there to do the right thing. The rest are corrupt narcissists looking to cash in on their position of power. Regarding casting blame on the states, their only recourse is nullification and secession, but states are too beholden to the feds for funding and other support, so they are not so quick to play either card. However, nullification of unconstitutional federal dictates is slowly becoming common practice. If you are interested in that type of stuff, check out the Tenth Amendment Center. I also produced an episode on nullification, that was episode 23, and I've got several episodes on secession, episodes 87, 88, 110, and 128. So how much money have I saved the federal government throughout this episode by eliminating unconstitutional federal departments and agencies? By my count, it's about $1.6 trillion. You know what? I found another $270 billion. I cut the Small Business Administration, Department of Energy, Commerce Department, NASA, Department of Agriculture, Department of Housing and Urban Development, and the National Science Foundation. I, I just couldn't find anything in the Constitution that allowed them to exist. At the end of the day, the Constitution grants the federal government a very narrow list of powers. They do not include anything about marriage, health insurance, education, gun control, labor laws, abortion, old age pensions, student loans, bailouts for corporations, carbon dioxide emissions, welfare programs, farm subsidies, foreign aid, infrastructure spending, or the regulation of marijuana. Isn't that remarkable? And for those of you who have had heartburn throughout the episode thinking, well, if the federal government isn't involved in some of these things, then who's going to take care of all that stuff? The answer is multifaceted. Number one, a lot of that stuff is unnecessary or is so full of waste, fraud, and abuse that they should be abolished. But more importantly, all those things can be handled at the state level. And don't give me this crap about, we can't have 50 departments of education and 50 health departments. We can't have different definitions of marriage and different laws about abortion and different gun laws. I have news for you. We already have thousands of departments of education and thousands of health departments already at the state and local level. None of that needs to be directed from our overlords in D.C. That line of reasoning believes that everything needs to be centralized. Why the hell would we advocate for that? That's what failed left-wing ideologies advocate for. Socialism, communism, fascism, totalitarianism, authoritarianism. America was established to be a federal republic, decentralized, laboratories of democracy. If you feel that passionately about it, if you think the federal government should remain involved in something I mentioned here, then pass a constitutional amendment. The fact that we do not follow the amendment process proves my entire point about the post-constitutional nature of America. And that's the truth about post-constitutional America. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Thank you.